This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Genesis chapter 1. Today we begin a new series called The Beginning. The Beginning. And we are going to study Genesis 1 uh, through 11. 11 chapters on this study. We'll take a number of weeks to do this. And today I only want to cover verse 1. So let's read it. Let's pray. And uh, this will be the only time in all 11 chapters I will deal with one verse. We'll normally deal with a number of verses. And some Sundays we'll deal with an entire chapter or a chapter plus. But uh, today we're just going to deal with one verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text, which at the beginning of your word strikes us with such clarity uh, and yet with such mystery at the same time, with such power and glory and such mind-stretching truth. And so we pray that as we look at this text today, we ask you to speak to us, We ask you to open our eyes and open our ears to receive from your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our sense of awe, our sense of wonder, our capacity for amazement, our capacity for responsive worship and joy to you. I pray that you would expand our ability to humble ourselves by your power and I pray that we would see you in, in, a, in a new light, Lord. So open our eyes today, uh, give us ears to hear, and help us to respond uh, to you, the Creator, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to do a series on the beginning, on, or really we could say beginnings, because we're going to look at a number of beginnings. Today we're going to look at, uh, in one verse, the beginning of well, everything that is, uh, except God, but everything else. So we want to do that. We'll be looking at the beginning of humanity, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of work, uh, the beginning of sin, the beginning promise for redemption. So we'll be looking at a lot of beginnings. And, and I feel like this is a study that will serve us because as we go through these next 11 chapters over these weeks, we're, we're going to understand in the next couple weeks, we're going to understand how is the world supposed to be? How was it created to be? We'll understand what went wrong in the world. What, what is the problem in the world today? What's wrong with humanity? What's wrong with people? And what is God doing to redeem humanity and to fix a broken world? We'll learn about our purpose in life. The beginning of the Bible teaches us about why we were created and what our purpose is in life. We're going to learn about work and what is the nature of work and why is work a blessing and a good thing, a means of our worship actually to the Lord as we do it for him. We're going to learn about, as I mentioned earlier, about marriage, about the covenant of companionship, about God's creation of man and woman, about God's specific intentions for us to, uh, to, to be uh, either male or female. So we'll learn, to learn about God's design in the creation of gender, God's purpose for sexuality. Uh, we'll understand, learn that as well. We'll learn about sin. Uh, 
And we'll learn about its consequences as we look at these accounts where sin starts with a single, uh, a single compromise, a single act of rebellion, and multiplies over and over and grows and expands until God ultimately uh, destroys the world through flood, uh, save uh, one family. So we'll look at that, um, and we'll, we'll, learn about the, we'll learn about the promise of hope as well in the midst of sin. But most of all, I want to cover this because we will learn about God. The Bible is about God, and the Bible teaches us this in the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, James Boyce said, in many ways, this is the most important verse in all the Bible, because he says it's the opening, and it exposes us right into, in the face with God that God is the reason for the universe, that God is the reason for the Bible. And so through this study, I pray that as we see God in his work, we step back and we stand in awe of him. We stand in wonder of him. So my concern is that many of, our, many of our capacities to awe and wonder and worship God They've shrunk, they've shriveled, that we don't really have uh, the, the, uh, the sort of the awe muscle developed in our lives. We haven't really developed that sense of awe. Or maybe it's this, maybe that we, we are awestruck by things that aren't awesome. That we, the, we, the, we spend our awe on things that aren't deserving of awe. And, and uh, th- that's a concern that I have. And in many ways, that might be the greatest need of the church. People are starving. One author said, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give that diagnosis for their troubled lives. We are starving to encounter the greatness of God. That, that is your need. That is your hunger today. Have you, um, have you ever visited the Grand Canyon? And if you have, can you remember how you felt the first time when you looked into the depth of the Grand Canyon? I, I saw it for the first time as an adult, so I actually can remember the thought, I can remember the feeling I had as I looked over. And I don't really have a bad fear of heights, but at that moment I developed one. But looked over into its expanse. Charles Swindoll, uh, in, a, in a book, uh, tells a story, an anecdote of two men that I think is very telling, that, that really, it really puts a point on the, uh, the point I'm trying to make here in this introduction. He says this, two men were standing and looking over the Grand Canyon. Two men were standing and looking over the Grand Canyon. Seeing the great depth of that world-famous canyon, one man said, this is the hand of God. I'm amazed. The man next to him looked over the edge and spit. He said, that's the first time I ever spit a mile. (laughs) Probably that should have been said with a Texas accent. (laughs) That's the first time I ever spit a mile. Swindoll says, I guess it's all how you look at things. Fascinating, isn't it? It's a parable, I think. I don't know if he meant it that way, but it's a parable. It's a story with a point. Two men are faced with the exact same sight. One of them responds appropriately with awe at the depth of the canyon, but more so the God, the creator of the canyon. He sees this glorious work of creation, and he turns to God and says, I'm amazed. 
the other one next to him misses an opportunity to worship God. He misses an opportunity to stand in awe. He misses an opportunity to encounter God. He misses an opportunity to have a breathtaking experience by seeing the work of God and identifying God in it. And instead, he wastes his awe on what is trivial. He, he squanders his sense of wonder by spitting and saying, I've never spit a mile. He is amazed. Is this not a parable for our day? Plunging saliva for a mile has captured his attention. It is the trivial that amazes him, and he misses the transcendent altogether. He misses the glory of God. He misses his creator, and he's just distracted by something that is meaningless and humorous in how stupid it sounds in that moment. And I wonder about us, do we stop and think about our creator or do we just go through life sort of distracted by all of our countless shallow pursuits where the unamazing is totally amazing? Where, where an Instagram picture is labeled the most awesome day of my life and you're just eating pizza with a few friends. Really, that's the most awesome day of one's existence What a shallow existence, right? But that's how we often live. The thing about study of creation in particular, which today we're looking at one verse, then we'll look at the the seven days that follow next week. But one one of the challenges with it, and I think one of the unfortunate things, is that most of the teaching, or maybe not most, much of the teaching on creation from Christians immediately takes an apologetic sort of approach. It immediately goes to apologetics, that is, uh, giving a reason. It immediately starts critiquing evolution. It immediately starts presenting scientific evidence, validating the biblical account. And I'm thankful for that kind of work. We benefit from people who present those kind of arguments and demonstrate Uh, the truthfulness of the Scripture. So that's valuable, but that's not the point of this text. The the point of this text is not to somehow contrast uh, science. The the author of this text, Moses, is not battling uh, the theory of evolution. He's worshiping God. The whole purpose of the text, the battles he is battling are, are the creation accounts of all the people around him who say, this is how the world was created, but he is wanting to point and say, God alone, God alone created. And so the text is actually to function not just, a, not, not just as a, something in our apologetics uh, sort of weapon, a weapon for apologetics or something like that. It's not an immediate study of creation. It's to be a study of the creator. It is to promote worship. If we study Genesis 1 and we come out with arguments and not worship, we've missed the point of the text. If you, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 and you don't come away with a sense of your purpose On this planet, if you don't know why you were breathing God's air and what you're created for, if it doesn't give you that sense of purposefulness, that sense of meaning, that sense of reason, if we don't get that, then we've missed the reason for the text. The text tells us about God and is to promote our worship and is to inform us with a vision 
of why we are here. But in the first place, it's to promote worship. So don't hear what I didn't say just now. I didn't say that apologetics and discussing this uh, and, and, and seeking to produce arguments that, uh, that, in essence, support the text. I didn't say that's worthless, meaningless, or not even important. I think it's very important. I just don't think it's the primary purpose of the text. And I think it's possible to miss the text. So I want to say three things about this verse today. Um, and... Uh, then we're going to respond with worship. The first one is that the focus of creation is God. The focus of creation is God. And we learn some things about God from the very first verse of his story. The Bible is a story, and it starts with sort of a summary statement that summarizes the entire first chapter. In the beginning, God. Now here's the amazing thing about the Bible. We are already past our capacity to understand or explain. In the first four verses, it's already beyond us. The first four verses, we already bump up against transcendence. Transcendence means that God is beyond us, that God is other than us, that God is separate from the creation. We we get that from the very beginning. In the beginning, God already exists. In the beginning, God At the dawn of time, God is, before there is time, there is the creation of time in an essence, if we can say it that way. At the beginning of creation, time comes into existence. But at that point, God is already on the scene. He is eternal. God is without a beginning. God is without an end. He is eternal. And from the very beginning, we see this this distinction. The first verse of the Bible tells us there is a distinction between God and everything else that is not God. There is a distinction between the Creator and everything else because the Creator is already there at the beginning. Everything we know has a beginning, but God has no beginning. Just think about that for a moment. God has no beginning. In studying Genesis, I found tremendous help in a children's commentary. So I've been reading this children's commentary written by an author named Nancy Gans, and she is better than many of the uh, scholarly uh, commentaries I've read. And this is what she writes about this. God was there in the beginning. God was there before the beginning. God was there without a beginning. No PhD will say it better than that. That God was there in the beginning. He was there with no beginning. God has always been. And this stretches the limit of our comprehension. Everything we know has a starting point. But God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Only God is present at the grand opening at the opening ceremonies of the universe, at the opening ceremonies of creation, only God is present. And that leads us to stand back and say, God is infinitely greater than I am. God is infinitely greater than we are. In Psalm 90, the psalmist says this way, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. The psalmist says, before there was any creation from everlasting, that means eternal for always, you were always God and always 
will be. And the, the psalmist stands back and wonders at that. He worships at that. As a matter of fact, Psalm 90, he starts with saying, you've been our resting place or you have been our dwelling place for all generations. So he starts with, you are the God of Israel. And then he scopes back and says, wait a minute, beyond that, before there was any creation, you already existed, you were everlasting, and you are everlasting. It just draws him to wonder. It's like saying, Lord Jesus, you rule over the church. Wait a minute. Before there even was a church, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus, from eternity past as well. This should cause our souls to just pause in admiration, reverence, worship. We can be so flippant about God, and the beginning of the Bible wants to tell us He's not like us. He's not, we, we can't fully comprehend or fully grasp him. We're not his equal in any way. We're not his match. And it starts with this. He's eternal. When the creation began, he already existed. Also in this passage, we learn that God is self-existent. Self-existent. That is, he exists in and of himself. I'm using a few theological terms today that, that, that reflect how we understand the truth of God that's reflected in this scripture and in, in other scriptures as well. Uh, I won't be doing that. The rest of this is story. So the rest of this is all narrative. How did he create? What did he do with Adam and Eve? What happened to them? What happened to Cain? What happened in that mysterious thing where the sons of God marry the women of the earth? What, what happens in the flood? What happens in the Tower of Babel? Those are all stories. But in this first verse, we get this sort of statement of, uh, that's a propositional truth. It's not story. It's not fleshed out in one verse. It's fleshed out over the chapter. And we learned that he is self-existent. He, he exists in and of himself. It says, God created the heaven, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and earth is a, it's a, um, it's a figure of speech called a merism, where you take two different things and you say those two things and it means everything in between. So if I say to you, I'm going to come to your house, rain or shine. I don't mean I'm going to come to your house if it's raining, I'm going to come to your house if the sun is shining, but if it's partly cloudy, I may not come to your house. If I say, I'm coming to your house, rain or shine, I mean, no matter what, I'm coming. All circumstances, weather related, I will be there. That's what heavens and earth means. It means, it doesn't, it doesn't just mean like there's the earth and there's the sky. It means everything conceivable that exists. In other words, we could read it this way, and this is what the figure of speech means, that God created everything. That's what it means. And yet, there is no one creating God. There, there are two categories of beings. There is the creation, and there is the creator. There are uncreated, there is an uncreated being, and there are, uncre- and there are created beings. I butchered that. There is an uncreated being, and there are creative, created beings. We are all created by him. He is the only one who exists in and of himself. Here's a way to think about it. With Without me, God exists. Before you were born, God existed. Before anyone was born, God existed. Without me, God exists. Without God, I don't exist. We, we only exist because he gives us existence. We only exist because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we are dependent for our existence. God is independent. God is completely independent. We are completely 
dependent. Now that means a lot of things, but it minimally means this, that we are accountable to the one who has created us. Creator creation implies accountability, that we give an account of ourselves to the one who created us. We are dependent on the one who created us. He doesn't give an account of himself to the creation. The creator is not obligated to give an account of himself to the creation. The creation is accountable to give an account to the one who creates. And we often just have that the exact opposite. We live in a world where we want God to explain himself, where we demand that God give us a reason why this happened or why that did not happen. And the first book, the first verse of the Bible says, you know, you've got that backwards. You've got that backwards. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, a thing called God in the Dock. The Dock is like, um, I guess, in in British law or courtroom, it's where, uh, it's what we call the witness uh, the witness seat, or where, wherever you sit as a witness in a courtroom. And, and, and he talks about God in the dock, that God is like in the witness seat, and we are the prosecutor asking him questions, demanding he explain himself. <laughs> and the Bible says, in the beginning, God created it all. God is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. Many, many religions believe that sort of the creation and, God and the gods were of the same sort. They were all together. So like a god sort of from him came a creation and they were uh, spiritually connected. But in the Bible it says, no, God is separate from the creation. He created the heavens and the earth. He is self-existent. He is self-sufficient. He is independent. And this is really where evangelism starts. Evangelism starts with, in the beginning, God. That we are all accountable to a God who has always been. We are dependent. This should lead to humility. It should lead to an awareness of my need for God. It should lead to a growing dependence on God. It should lead to a liberal worship of God. God, I... How glorious is this, that you chose to create the universe, that you chose to create me, that you chose to reveal yourself to me, that I know my creator. How glorious is that? Not only that, God is omnipotent, so he's eternal. Uh, He creates, but there's nothing in all of scripture revealing that he's created. He is uncreated. And he is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. He has all power. In the beginning, God created. Now, This verb created is only used in the Bible to speak of God. This particular Hebrew verb is only used in reference to God, with God as the subject. God's the subject, this verb. There's other verbs that speak of this, making, maybe maybe translated even created in English elsewhere. But this verb is only used of God. And it, it, it indicates that he created without any kind of working materials. So we're gonna look at, the fact that we are created in the image of God. So in, we could say that we are created as individuals with creative capacities, and that's true. We're called to create. We find fulfillment in creating things because we are created in the image of our creator, and he created. But his creation is very different than ours. Very different. His creation happened where there is nothing, and he speaks, and there is a universe. Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. 
That is absolute power. He speaks and something is created from nothing. Something is created with nothing. If I hand you, if I come to you and you say, man, I'm, I'm a creative. Okay, we'll be the judge of that. But you say, uh, I'm a creative and I hand you a handful of nothing. And we know this is not really nothing. This is like a pile of atoms, right? But I would say, I hand you a handful of nothing and say, okay, take that. And you reach out. Oh, don't drop that nothing. Okay, you've got that nothing over here. And then you, what, you can't take that nothing and make something. You can't go make that nothing a, uh, a painting. You can't make that nothing a computer chip. You, you, can't, you can't take nothing and create something out of it, and that's how God created the entire universe. He spoke, and it came to be. We create with existing materials. God creates out of nothing, and that is absolute power. Even when there is nothing there, God speaks, and by his very word, something appears and obeys him. That's just a power that is beyond anything we can relate to. God is eternal. God exists on his own. We are dependent. He is independent. God is all-powerful. God is triune. Now, we got to look a little bit out of the first verse for this. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. So in these first few verses, we have God... Uh, presumably the Father, and we have the Spirit hovering over the waters. Uh, now, if we go to the New Testament, in John 1, it says that Jesus is the Word. In the begin- John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then it goes on to say, He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So, the, God speaks, the Father speaks, Everything that is made is made through the word, Jesus. There's nothing made that he didn't make, and the Spirit is involved in this at the beginning, hovering over the water. So we see as part of creation a Father, a Son, and the Spirit all together as a part of creation. Now, admittedly, we don't find the Son here in these first couple verses, Jesus, but we find him in other texts of Scripture. This is an important point that God is a Father. The Creator is a Father, In John 17, Jesus says this. You you ever wondered about what was Jesus or what was God doing before creation? Um, I read a wonderful book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I very much recommend this book. But he has a whole chapter on what about creation and what was happening before the creation of the world. And he points out that in John 17, Jesus says this, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before creation, the Father is loving the Son. The fa- For all creation, God is a Father. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and He is eternally loving His Son. That is different than all the surrounding gods of the people of Israel when this was written. That is different than all the gods out there today. That God, the, the, the God of the Bible is a father who is loving his son before creation. So in verse 1, we find out that he, uh, that he does the act of creating. Uh, Genesis 1.1. But for eternity before that, 
Eternity before that, he was a father. Before he exercised the act of creation and acted as a creator, he was already a father. Before he was the ruler over all creation, because there was no creation, before he was the ruler over all creation, he was a father. Before he was the sovereign king of the created universe, he was a father, eternally loving his son. Now, that says something very powerful about this. And again, I'm I'm stretching beyond this actual text to find out what God was doing before verse 1. But that's a very powerful truth, that the God we serve is a God who is a father. That is the core of his nature, is father. So it's not just all-powerful being just, and we don't know his nature or what is he like. He just starts speaking things into existence. Is he good or he's bad? We, we, don't, we don't know anything. We just, at this point, all we know is that he created. That's all we know in verse one. So we know he was self-existent. We know that no one created him as we read throughout the Bible. We know that he is eternal, that he is there at the beginning of everything else. But we also know that from elsewhere that he is a father and that he is loving. The focus of creation is God. He's mentioned 35 times in this first chapter. He's eternal, he's self-existent, he's all-powerful. We can look beyond these first couple verses and see that he is triune. He's a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, one God in essence, three persons. So God is the focus of creation. The goal of creation ultimately is worship. And when I say that, I don't mean just singing a song or praying a prayer. I mean all of life lived for him in the broadest sense. The goal of creation is worship. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God owns everything. Everything he owns by virtue of his creation, since he's a creator, he owns everything. And so therefore, we, uh, we are responsible to the one who owns it all. We are responsible to, well, we're responsible to respond to him. We're responsible to respond in love to the loving father creator. We're, we're responsible to manage all of, he, all of what he gives to us, for he creates everything. We are to respond as those who are faithful, as stewards of what he has given us. He's a loving father who, who creates us that we might have communion with him, that we might share in the love the father has for the son, that we might experience that same love from God. John, uh, we see that in John 17 that God creates us, that we are designed to worship this indescribable God. The God who is beyond us, we are, we are to bow before him in wonder and awe and worship, and we are to live our lives realizing that he is the one who owns everything by virtue of creation. Then why don't we? Why don't we? It's a good question. Why isn't all the earth worshiping this God? Why isn't all the earth living with their lives on purpose, purposefully living in in the way God created them? Why isn't the entire world awed and in wonder and blown away and amazed, not by the trivial, but by the God who created everything? Why isn't that the way today? Because after he creates in this first chapter, that's not the end of the story. 
But we're going to see what happens in the story is that the two people he created, Adam and Eve, they choose to turn from him. They choose to live their own way. They choose to put themselves in the place of God. They choose as created beings to act like uncreated beings, to act like those who are independent and can do what they want, who defy God to do what they want to do. And because of that, they are punished for their sin. And because of that, their sin goes viral in the human race. And everyone that follows them has by nature a nature to do the very same thing. We're all born with the nature to live our own ways. And that's why we are all created with a capacity for worship, but we chase worship in a thousand different ways. We chase it through money, we chase it through sex, we chase it through relationships, uh, we chase it through power and status, we chase it through a many, many different ways. We all are pursuing various ways uh, to, experience, um, to, to experience life and meaning, turning from God and sinning. But even after they fall, God promises to them that he will send one uh, who will rescue them, who will rescue them from their sins. It's a promise that he will send Jesus, one who will step on the head of the serpent. We see that at the very beginning of the story. And as we trace the story on, we see that God himself comes in Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man, to die for our sins, to give himself on the cross in our place so that everyone who believes in Jesus has their sins forgiven and more than that is reconciled, is brought back into relationship with this loving Father that we have turned from. So not only does the Father create us for communion with Him, we're going to see in the text ultimately, but even when we turn away from Him and don't want relationship with Him, He chases after us and comes directly to us in Jesus and gives His life as a substitute for us. And that the Bible says that everything is, cre- is, is for Jesus as well. So the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And the New Testament says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So everything is created through Jesus and for Jesus. The earth is the Lord's. Everything belongs to him. So we are created, and not only are we created by him, but then we are redeemed. We are given new life by Christ. And so we are called to turn. The implication is to live a life. Everything created for him. We're to live a life of worship to the Lord in all that we do, in all that we have. All of our life is to be lived for the one who has created us. And for the Christian, uh, we know him not only as the one who has created us, but the one who has loved us and forgiven us at the greatest possible cost to himself in sacrificing his son for our sins. So the creation story, it's ultimately about God. It points to him. The, the goal of creation is that we would know and worship the God who rules over all, for everything is for him, the scripture teaches us. And lastly, there, there's an implication of creation. If, if the focus of creation is God, if the goal of creation is worship, the implication of creation is purpose, purpose in our lives. The universe is not random. And, and that, is the, that is the great tragedy of all belief systems that don't believe in God as the personal divine creator. If, if creation is the work of indis, you know, unexplainable chance, 
if it's a random sort of event, if it's an unknown and unknowable event, then pick your life purpose because they're all equal. They're all equal. If it's, if it's just a random thing, who's to say? And that's kind of where our culture lives. Who's to say? Who am I to say? You pick your truth, your purpose in the universe. You pick your truth, you pick your truth, you pick your truth. But we're not left to pick our own truth of what our purpose is. If God is the creator, then we are created in his image, image with dignity, with value, with purpose, loved by the Father, and given a reason for life. And even when we turn from him, he still sent his son after us and brought us back to him. So we have a doubly rich meaning in our lives that he created us for a purpose. We turned for that purpose. He repurposed us through redemption and gave us a, a, a purpose of experiencing his grace and communing with him and sharing that with others. So we have this doubly rich pur- purpose through creation and through redemption, created in his image with a capacity and a calling in our lives, all of us, to do things that are meaningful, that are substantive, that matter, that are fruitful, and that goes all the way back to creation. If God did not create you and God is not personal and there isn't, there's no meaning and design and purpose and goal of the universe, if it's not moving somewhere that God is describing, then you have no meaning in your life. You have no real purpose or at least you, you have a self-determined meaning and a self-determined purpose in life as opposed to a transcendent, glorious, divine purpose for your life. Genesis 1.1 answers the question, why am I here? Well, at least, it at least starts to answer the question, why I am here? Why am I here? It doesn't tell you everything you'll know about why are you here, but it gives the most important point. It's the first domino in understanding that. You're here because God created you. Because this uncreated being, this divine, glorious, loving father who was a father before he even acted as a creator, who was a father even before he acted as a ruler over his creation, before he brought creation into existence. This loving father who was loving the son created a universe where he could display his love, the love he has for his son, and share that love with us in communion with us. He did not need us. The Father, Son, and Spirit had a relational unity and satisfaction without us. God's not a needy God who is kind of bored and a little bit lonely. And that's part of the doctrine of the Trinity, is that there is a sweet, loving fellowship between the three persons and the one God. Um, But he created us because of his love to glorify himself and to glorify Uh, and to share his love ultimately with us. Now, I'm going to have a lot more to say in the coming weeks. I'm going to stop right here on this. There's more to say about how Genesis 1 talks about what is our purpose, what's our, uh, it, it shapes our view of the world, it shapes our view of the meaning of reality, it shapes our view of what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong in our lives and in the universe. And it shapes what, is the, what should we pursue with our lives as well. So we were created for a purpose. We were saved for a purpose to glorify this loving Father Creator. And we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about that when we get into the story itself. The focus of the creation is God. The goal of the creation is worship. The implication of the creation is that there's purpose for us. There's purpose in our lives. 
You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.